Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormon. Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? It's always great to talk to you, yeah. Likewise, sir. And we got a lot to talk about today. This is going to be, uh, what is this, Matthew 4 and then Luke chapter 4 through 5. These are some great chapters that cover a very important part uh, just prior to Jesus's ministry. Um, so I'm really anxious to get into it, see where the conversation goes. Uh, again, this is Matthew 4 and Luke 4 through 5. So uh, Derek, just by way of introduction, is there anything we need to know before we dive into these chapters? I know there's a couple things we wanted to address, but yeah, that I wanted covers to a- okay. mention, first of all, the Pope. Did you hear about the Pope's statement this this week? The Pope made a statement this week. What what the Pope say, Derek? So I don't have it in front of me right now, but the Pope came out and said that uh, consensual same-gender sex should not be criminalized anywhere in the world, Mm. right? He came out and and there's a number of countries where that still is the case, and there are a number Mm -hmm. of Catholic bishops that support that, right? All right. Up until, uh, did you know that President Oaks supported that in the eighties? He's he was. I've read his essays on this, and he's a legal scholar. He says, "Yeah, we need to keep consensual same-sex sex criminal." Like, isn't that mm. isn't that really weird? Like, that is a little strange. Like, it doesn't even fit with a um, Western democratic liberty-based de- uh, society, okay. right? Um, that has so fundamental I'm, I'm rights. I'm looking at this. It says Pope Francis says that uh, being gay is a sin or that gay. What does it say? The headline says, quote, Pope Francis says homosexuality is a sin, but not a crime. Does that sound right? Yes. All right. Got you. And well, uh, so. So, yeah, it's uh, and he's getting pushback from the from the right in but, the Catholic yeah. world on this. I do see traditionalists are pretty mad about it. Anyway, so I just wanted to name that. I don't need to talk about that too much. I'm not an expert on this, but I think he is using his um, moral witness in a way and his platform to to try Mm -hmm. to do what good he can. Anyway, so I just wanted to name that. Um, So the world is the world is changing. So so we're going to see where that goes. And that and the church had better change quickly. Uh, not to conform to the world, but because if something's right, you should do it. Yeah. Anyway, I also wanted to name two resources that uh, people may or may not know about. The first is Dan McClellan, and he is a biblical scholar. He's one of the few serious, real, academic biblical scholars in the church. Mm-hmm. And his main field is Hebrew Bible. And he's mm-hmm. available on Twitter and TikTok and probably elsewhere and his handle for both of those is at McClellan, but it's spelled M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Again, that's at M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N, which is not how he spells his name, but at McClellan on Twitter and TikTok. Check him out. He's really good. Um, yeah, really great. And then the other well, resource— We also have an episode with him in we case do. you guys want to like, introduce I, was... yourselves that way. It was back a while back. I don't even remember what we talked about. This may have been over a year ago, but like we were discussing his platform and like what brought him into the kind of public facing uh, theology in the public square, biblical scholarship in the public square thing. So I know we asked a lot of basic questions about that just when he was like really breaking into 
uh, TikTok, but that's a great introduction to him. Yeah, and I'm mentioning him because for 10 years he was a, worked with a scripture translation employed by the church. Now he's breaking out into a private career of some sort with public-facing theology and scholarship. So that is now where he's transitioning into. So I'm wondering what that's going to look like and what, mm. what, uh, how much time that will free up for him to do stuff that our community and our context desperately needs. And so that will, that will be really great. Maybe we can uh, collaborate with him on stuff again. Anyway, the next resource is the Bible Project videos. Now, the cool thing about these Bible Project videos on YouTube, you can uh, go through and there's like a, a 10 to 15 minute or a seven minute outline of a biblical book. And it's done in a way that makes the flow accessible within its historical context. You can see like an outline of the book. You can see where, what things are doing in their literary and historical context. And it's also informed by scholarship. It doesn't quote all the scholars because that's not the level of detail people need in that introductory video. But as someone familiar with the scholarship, I can see, oh, he's actually doing some really good work on this. Um, and I forgot his name right now, the name of the dude who does it. Tim, oh no, it's so embarrassing. I can't remember his name. But um, Tim Mackey, I think it is. But anyway, so it's done by a real PhD, biblical scholar, but then it makes these things accessible. And I think it's accessible apart from denomination. You don't have to be a particular denomination to mm -hmm. benefit from these videos. And other Latter-day Saints have recommended them as well. And then the last thing I want to say is that we are entering sort of a juncture in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke where we're turning through some formational events in Jesus's ministry. We've had his baptism last week, and then we're going to get into his temptation and the opening of his ministry. So these are some really formational events in his uh, turn towards public ministry. And it's interesting that Luke puts the genealogy right there after the baptism, but before the temptation as a way of saying, well, this is where Jesus is coming from, and this is where Jesus is going. So I think that's kind of interesting. Do you have any uh, opening things, or should I say what I was going to say about Mark? Mark. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to add. I am curious to see where you're going to go with uh, Mark, considering, yeah, that that's not part of the reading, but I know you got a good reason. So uh, what are we doing in Mark? So the Mark 1, this is really interesting because uh, the temptation is found in Mark, but no de essentially no details. It just gets two verses where it gets many verses in the Matthew 4 and Luke 4 version. And that's why I wanted to go back and cover the Mark 1 version. I don't even know if we covered it last time. Maybe I said, oh, I'll cover it when we cover Luke <laughs> 4 yeah, and Matthew I think 4. That's what I, I think that's what actually happened. Oh, okay. So here's what it says. Uh, this is Mark 1, 12 through 13. Very brief. Very few details. The Spirit immediately drove him. This is right after the baptism. The Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, enduring temptations from Satan. He was with wild animals, and angels were ministering to his needs. That's it. That's all we get from Mark. And Matthew and Luke expand on that, give the actual words of Satan, the three temptations that he endured, and 
and uh, so forth. But I wanted to point out one very interesting thing about what, in terms of what's called redaction criticism. We can look at how Matthew and Luke change or alter Mark, assuming Mark and priority, assuming that they used Mark. What did they change? What did they decide to change? And so Luke's uh, and Matthew both change one word that is kind of uh, interesting in Mark. So it says the spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness. And the Greek word there is ekbalo. And ekbalo means to shove out or to drive out or to cast out or to throw out. It is a very, it's not a pretty word. It's not a friendly word. It's not a nice word. And you can tell kind of what it means in terms of where else it's used in the Gospels. It is used for when Jesus casts out demons. That verb is ekbalo. When Jesus talks about be- people being cast out or thrown out into outer darkness. Uh, that is also ekbalo. Same thing when Jesus drives out the money changers in, t- in the temple. That's also ekbalo. Most of the time, it is used in a negative or forceful or it's not a, it's not very pretty. It's not just not something you ever want done to you. Right. Right. And this is what the spirit does. The spirit, at least in Mark's version, drives him out or th- casts him out or shoves him out into the wilderness. Right. And mm-hmm. so Matthew and Luke clean that up using a different Greek word. Um, anago in Matthew, which means to lead up or ago in Luke, which means to lead out. So they euphemize it and say, well, the spirit led him up into the wilderness. So they le- the spirit led him out. Right. Instead of Mark's quite bold, drove him out. Now, let's talk about this. The subject of that verb is the spirit. That's so interesting. I think it is so interesting because one of the most manipulative things that Latter-day Saints can say when their comfort is disturbed by someone on the margins is, I don't feel the spirit or the spirit (laughs) left the room. But let me tell you, and here's what Mark is testifying, that one of the things that the spirit does is to dump you into an uncomfortable space so you can learn or so that you can grow or that you can be challenged or tested. The spirit drove him, Ekbalo, into the wilderness. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, if anyone says, oh, I can't feel the spirit. Well, maybe the spirit is uh, is doing one of these moves on you, okay? And, and yeah. have you heard this when when someone raises a contrary point and they'll say, "Oh, you're you're being contentious," or the spirit left as soon as you spoke up in defense of basic human rights, right? You've heard that, right? Absolutely. Oh, More often yeah. Well, than anyway. I can count. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, so people who listen to this, you better not use that ever again, noting uh, what Mark does in Mark 1.12. Let me tell one more detail in Mark 1.13 that the angels were ministering to his needs. So in Mark's version, you encounter three, uh, say, uh, Jesus encounters three uh, categories. One is Satan. Two, he encounters wild animals. And then three, he encounters angels ministering to his needs. But this last thing is proof that Jesus is not self-reliant. Right, I think we mm-hmm. overestimate or over um, put over emphasis on this self reliance thing. And that um, word, and that de- phrase, is nowhere in the scriptures, by the way. Right, right, um, and it's also found. This is also found in Matthew four eleven. Matthew has this detail, uh, but Luke does not, if I remember it correctly. So we can see kind of how Matthew and Luke are changing Mark. One is that they added more detail. 
And two is that they changed the detail uh, in, in terms of the wording to make it a little less harsh about what the Spirit is doing to Jesus. So mm-hmm. let's go. You have any thoughts about this or should we go into Luke's version of the temptation? Well, just a word about that is like I did notice that kind of almost violent use of the word as to, as to describe what happened when Jesus was driven into the wilderness. And that seems to be often the case when it comes to the beginning of a wilderness experience. I don't know that any of the wilderness experiences that occur in scriptures, like most of the significant ones or the big ones that we tend to quote, like the children of Israel, uh, the family of Lehi, or, you know, the early saints in the Doctrine and Covenants, anytime they had a wilderness experience, it almost always seemed to be one that they did not choose. Like they were thrown into it, they were driven into it. And I think, or at least I'd like to believe that uh, this verb that is being used in the Mark version is trying to like capture that. Now, yeah, Jesus is kind of going willingly into this situation, but at the same time, the beginning of a wilderness experience is, or like a wilderness experience period is never a pleasant one. Like we've alluded to the purpose of the wilderness before, and we had a longer discussion on it during the Doctrine and Covenants year because they too had wilderness experiences. And we talked about this with the children of Israel, um, but it's not a it's not a pleasant experience. It's not a it's not a night it's not a nice experience. Um, the children of Israel, Lehi's family, the pioneers, some of the most uh, interesting, significant, and groundbreaking revelations, uh, most significant inbreakings of the divine, the most significant spiritual learning. Um, that all happened in the wilderness. People learning to be dependent on God and learning to be independent of earthly things. That all happens in or shortly after the wilderness. And it's almost always an unpleasant experience. So part of me wants to believe that that word is deliberately used to kind of capture that, even though in this unique case of Jesus Christ, he is, you know, at least in the Matthew and Luke versions, willingly submitting himself to uh, this wilderness experience, this place of uh, growth in God, this education in God, education from God, this communion with God. Um, like that wilderness always, that wilderness experience always has that uh, association with it. And I think mm-hmm. the Mark version may be trying to capture it. Like I can appreciate what you're say- saying about Matthew and Luke almost softening this language. I think that serves a purpose, but I do think it's worth, uh, or I guess, and I do think it's worth holding that intention with the verb that Mark uses to capture the actual and uh, necessary kind of unpleasantness of the wilderness experience, the beginning of it in particular. Like it's always a profoundly uncomfortable experience, if not always. And it's scary, it's uncertain, it's lonely, and it's painful. So that that's what I mm-hmm. felt, or that's what I hear when I hear that verb being used in the Mark version. And another example of Matthew and Luke softening something that Mark has written is in the baptismal narrative of Jesus, where in Mark's version, Jesus sees the heavens torn open or, or like ripped open. The, the verb is schizo in Greek. And then Matthew and Luke change it. I can't remember the exact wording, but they just... They don't have that word at all. It's more it's just like opened. It's just opened. They, they, uh, heaven's opened rather than being torn open. So 
Uh, I kind of want to go in and talk, uh, start talking about Luke's version of the temptation now. Does that make sense? Yeah, the Luke version of, yeah, let's go into Luke. So, and here's a case where we get more human fingerprints because we can see, in terms of redaction criticism or source criticism, what, how Matthew and Luke changed their source. Now, we don't have the source, but it, 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 this could be Q material because it is a material common to Luke and Matthew that's not in Mark, the details of the temptation. But what's interesting is they have the, a different order. Did you notice this? Different order of the temptations? Yeah, the three temptations come in a different order in Matthew and Luke. So both of them start out with the temptation for bread. Yes. Matthew has then the pinnacle of the temple, like throw yourself down from the temple. Yes. And then... But this one is different. And then I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. That's the third one. But Uh Luke switches those two and has the kingdoms of the world temptation second, and then the pinnacle of the temple third. Uh... And some people are going to say, well, um, and this is what fundamentalists have done, is they've tried to harmonize it and say, well, uh, Satan did four temptations. He did one of them twice, and mm-hmm. and then Matthew's taking one of those versions and then uh, omitting the other. It's like, But anyway, that, that's, to me, that's just way overdone. We don't need to do that. We don't need to be fundamentalists with respect to this text. I clearly uh-huh. think that one or both of them changed the order to fit their redactional tendencies. Maybe Luke wanted to end up with the temple because the temple is so important to Luke. Luke begins with the temple and ends with the temple and and has that as a significant piece. Or maybe Matthew wanted to end with the kingdoms of the world so that uh, it flows into where he's going to go with the the Sermon on the Mount or the next details in Matthew. I don't know, but I'm just saying we don't have to take these things woodenly. There are human fingerprints all over the mm-hmm. scriptures. There's human fingerprints all over general conference talks, human fingerprints all the, over the family proclamation. Like, we should just admit that it's there and be comfortable with that. I mean, we don't have to agree with everything that, that might might be a problematic, but I'm saying it shouldn't shake our testimonies to realize, look, there's a human component to the final wording of our scriptures Mm. anyway so uh so yeah what did you have to say about luke's temptation well i had questions but a couple things i wanted to say about the the uh, luke temptation uh actually making another editorial note about this i just wanted to point out that uh one thing that the harper collins study bible version of this story or not version but the NRSV points out is that the second and third temptations are uh, tr- uh, transposed so that Jerusalem is accented in the final position of emphasis uh, and the sensitive issue of political authority is not, which is the way it is in Matthew, which I did find interesting considering mm, how. Yeah, that is, not that afraid is a good of, point. Yeah. But like Luke was not afraid to discuss the political nature of this. So that just seemed a little strange to me. I think there is more for me to like dig into there. Like I'll do that in my own time. But I did find that to be an interesting observation considering how unafraid Luke was of discussing the political context of what is happening and uh, the birth of Jesus and, you know, now the uh, ministry of Jesus or just before the ministry of Jesus. So interesting choice I thought that uh, Luke made there. But anyway... Um, what I wanted to highlight with regard to the temptations, um, there is, I don't know how to say, 
Okay, I'm just going to say this, and you let me know if there's a better way to say this. Like, Jesus has to deal with Satan, who is, in essence, distorting the biblical witness in order to demoralize the Savior and get him to sin. And that's the, in my opinion, the brilliance of Satan and other antichrists. They will quote scripture to lend themselves a little bit of legitimacy, but then distort what is being said in a way that bears false witness about who God is or who we are and what God wants for us. Like we see this a bunch today. Uh, just the other day, I saw someone in social media try to explain the disparities in arrests, employment, and education to the cultural deficiencies of my race. And then just last mm. week, I watched a man, a member of this church, uh, try to spin obedience is the first law of heaven, which isn't even doctrine, by the way, into a way to tell his future wife to obey him. So, like, anyway, I heard this stuff a bajillion times before, but if we, like, don't make an effort to understand why these disparities exist, then we may find ourselves in a difficult position when other other people try to use disparities created by a racist system to justify the perpetuation of that racist system. And what we get in these temptations, or at least, uh, you know, one of them, Satan is quoting scripture to get Jesus to sin. Uh, you mm -hmm. observed that Korahor couched a kernel of truth in every seductive heresy he spoke back when we, back when we were discussing right. the Book of Mormon. And I know this is something that you know many queer folks, especially in the in the church, deal with. Like how often are scriptures taken out of context to witness to uh, that community that God doesn't love them, or that their immutable identities are not allowed authentic expression in the in the plan of salvation, or otherwise say things that the Lord's lips never actually spoke or intended? Uh, mm -hmm. That's the kind of scriptural abuse that a Satan is engaging in during the temptation of Christ. It's the uh, transmogrification and weaponizing of God's word to harm God's children. And Jesus spends a significant portion of Matthew 23 decrying this very thing. And I'll add, it's one of the few times that we see the Savior uh, get angry in the scriptures, which is which I think is saying something, considering mm -hmm. all the mess that Jesus had to deal with during his own sojourn in mortality. Uh, this also harkens back to what uh oh my gosh this was in the book that you got me for my birthday a couple years back you got me um an esau macaulay book uh, and he calls mm. it the uh, slave masters exegesis and how yeah. their view their reading of the bible bears false witness about god and uh and the worth of black souls so in luke 4 we see uh satanic exegesis of god's word to tell lies about the vulnerable and uh, Luke, again, in chapter four, is highlighting a very high, highlighting a struggle that's very real to people on the margins, perhaps people like him, assuming that Luke is a Gentile. And I think it's worth mm -hmm. also talking about the nature of these temptations more specifically, uh, like what is Satan attacking? And um, just to harken back to what we were talking about before. We uh, actually press record today, Derek. I think the brilliance of what Satan did was identify a legitimate need that Christ had, but then offer to fill it in an illegitimate right. way. And in so doing, he attacked God's ability to provide for Jesus, thereby undermining the relationship Jesus has with God. Uh, we see this happen a lot, and we see this happen in the world, and we see it happen in the church. We see legitimate needs that need to be affirmed, like the need to be affirmed, the need to feel safe, the need to belong. And then those are often 
attempted to be filled with quote unquote covenant path living, which actually undermines the image of God mm-hmm. and some of God's children. Uh, you've talked about this many times, Derek. Actually, I've been talking about it a bunch. Al- I've been talking too much already, but I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts about this kind of filling, uh, identifying a legitimate need uh, and trying to fill it in an illegitimate way as a queer saint. Right, exactly. I want to first point out, because many readers may not realize this, but this is the only narrative in the New Testament where Satan's words are recorded. Isn't that interesting? This is the only time we get Satan's words. So we, I should probably come back and do a longer exegesis of what Satan's doing here. Okay. But we can see this throughout a lot of, I think, a lot of Latter-day Saints are raised with this idea that, oh, Satan's going to tempt us with wickedness, like Satan's going to tempt us to murder and steal. But, you know, like, I don't really have a desire to murder anyone, right? I just, or, mm-hmm. or steal, right? I just don't want to do those. Like, I don't really want to hurt people. Most people don't want to hurt people. Well, I'm maybe I'm <laughs> exaggerating the good nature of humans, but but what Satan does best and the way he really hijacks our best motives in the church cuz I honestly think most most members of the church, most leaders of the church, they're just trying to do good. They're trying to do what they think is good. And Satan's going to work with that. Satan's going mm-hmm. Satan's not done. <laughs> Satan's going to work with that. He's going to hijack our purest desires. He's going to tempt us with a lesser good, right? Mm. It still is a good, but it's not good enough. He's going to tempt us with uh, a shortcut to the right result. Like if we have a good goal, a very righteous desire, he's going to he's going to use our righteous desires and then tempt us to find a shortcut to the right result. Mm-hmm. And I see this one a good example of this is unity in the church. Unity in the church ah. is good. Unity yeah. in the church is good. I love it. We all want that. But how do you but get there? We often there? mistake unity for uniformity and right. then it becomes a how problem. Do, how do we get there is the problem. Right. Mm-hmm. If you get there by censorship and coercion and the punishment of people who are different and the retaliation against anyone who criticizes you, yeah, you're going to get unity in the church, but you just took a shortcut. Oh, boy, mm-hmm. Satan's going to jump for joy. He's mm-hmm. going to his horns will light up and his tail will wag because you took the wrong road to the right result. Unity in the church is hard work. It takes persuasion and patience and diligence. It takes the divestment of privilege. It takes bringing people along. It takes real work. You have to gain buy-in from people who may differ from you. You can't just squash the results. Mm-hmm. And our culture, unfortunately, has uh, pampered the leaders uh, with this idea that they can just get unity in the church by, by saying so. Right. And that doesn't work. I agree that unity in the church is good. We should work for that. But we Mm -hmm. need to have true unity that comes through all of the parts being working together and having their proper function rather than Mm -hmm. just cutting off the the parts that aren't quite good. And censorship is just one shortcut. We can see that Satan's that was Satan's plan in the in the war in heaven. He wanted yep. a righteous result, but he wanted a shortcut. He wanted to take mm-hmm. away agency and say, well, everything's going to be perfect. No, Satan, you have a righteous, or at least what you're claiming is a righteous result, but you have a non-righteous way of getting there. Mm-hmm. Compulsion, coercion, censorship, retaliation, punishment of those below you, like exploiting your power, all of that 
yeah, you can. That's why I'm. That's why I'm committed to nonviolence. I know you and I have a thing about that, but to mm-hmm. me, nonviolence is is the only way to really. Because yeah, I can force you. I can put a gun to your head and make you do the right thing. But does that actually work in the long run? Right. It works in the short run. I agree with that. It works in the short mm-hmm. run. But does it really work in the long run? And the, 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 what Jesus modeled of, of submitting to violence and not engaging in it mm-hmm. is uh, kind of where I'm going with that. So, okay. But like you said, Satan's most powerful strategies are to use the truth. Mm-hmm. And Satan quotes truth from Scripture to prove his point, mm-hmm. to, to tempt us with a shortcut to the right result. But you know how Jesus refutes that? In all three cases, he quotes Scripture, which he presumably had memorized, which— all of us listeners, let's talk about the power of memorizing <laughs> scriptures. And I want to name that all of the scriptures that Jesus quotes are from the wilderness narrative. So we have this intertextual echo, this link back to Deuteronomy when Israel yeah. was in the wilderness. So yeah, we can see all that Deuteronomy scriptures. Exactly. Well, that's what I just said. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry, the wilderness narrative. Like I wasn't sure which wilderness narrative we were looking at, but yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Like Israel's wilderness narrative. Um, got you. Got you. And so we can see that Jesus succeeds in the wilderness where Israel failed in their temptation in the wilderness. Israel was tested with hunger in in the wilderness. So we've got this recapitulation of where Israel failed and uh, where Jesus succeeded. And I just wanted to name one more thing about Satan's plan. Uh, Satan, that's that's why Satan is a deceiver. He makes something look good. He makes... Mm -hmm. He makes the short. He 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 hijacks our noblest desires, um, even me. Right? I wish I could just tell all the homophobes if I had the power to get all the homophobes out of the church. I wish I could do that. Right? But thankfully, I don't have that power mm-hmm. because I would be tempted to use it to, to, to do a shortcut. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here's what uh, Paul says in Second Corinthians eleven thirteen to fourteen. For such people, he's talking about some of his opponents. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So we have to be on the on the on the lookout for that. Satan can dress up as an apostle, right? Satan mm-hmm. can dress up as Derek, right? Mm-hmm. We got to be careful about this. Um, and, and especially looking inward, and though, and this is something ha- that that can be very easily hap- happen on the left too. Like we on the left, we woke people. We 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 know what it should look like. We're going to be tempted to to use shortcuts to get there, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, that doesn't work in the long run. And I just wanted to name, like, look at the three, look at the three temptations. We I don't think I I need to read the, the temptations, um, for the sake of time. But notice what they are. Mm-hmm. Satan uh, tempts Jesus with bread, uh, with uh, this, what I consider to be, so let's talk about this. Why why would Jesus throw himself down from the temple? I think what it is is a public witness because then everyone, Jerusalem was crowded. Everyone would look at this, see Jesus fall and see Jesus saved, like Jesus could uh, force God's hand to save him, right? And then everyone would believe him. Everyone, he would have fame. He would have pro- he would have all this popularity. People would all believe him. But that's a shortcut, right? There's a shortcut mm-hmm. to the bread. Just turn the stones into bread, right? That's a shortcut. Um, mm-hmm. 
throwing yourself down from the temple, that would be a shortcut to to fame and and yeah. people believing. No suffering in him. required and no cross required. <laughs> And same thing with the kingdoms of the world. Like, oh, I didn't need to pause and say, according to Dio Cassius, uh, a Roman historian, uh, in his Roman history, 62.5.3, the emperor Nero once claimed, I have the power to take away kingdoms and to bestow them. I think that's mm. just very interesting. And so this is what Satan has. So Satan is the, the god of this world in a sense, right? And could have maybe given authority to Jesus without having to do the work, right? All three of mm -hmm. these temptations were shortcuts to a noble desire because, yeah, Jesus should get bread, Jesus should get belief, and Jesus should be the king of the world, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why these temptations almost would have worked um, if if Jesus hadn't tuned into the scriptures that, that uh, provide a counterbalance to that. Right. And so he refutes with scripture. And I just want to name this. Isn't that interesting that Satan offers Jesus what the prosperity gospel offers? Hmm. Provisions, popularity, and power. I came up with that alliter alliterative uh, uh, thing, right? Provisions, the bread, nice. popularity, belief after seeing this miracle of being saved by God from, from, mm -hmm. from death, and then power, uh, power over. So yeah, why do American middle class uh, and upper class Latter-day Saints want to cozy up to the prosperity gospel when that's what, what Satan was preaching? Anyway, so I probably should be done talking about this, but just, just notice that. Provisions, popularity, and power, all noble goals, mm -hmm. but Satan wanted a shortcut. And I think there's so many shortcuts that lead to queer phobia in the church, right? Mm. And and we can talk more about that later. What do you what are your thoughts on this? I, I actually wanted to ask the question about the specificity of these particular temptations. Uh that was like on my list of things to do. Ask Derek about the specificity of the temptations and you just talked about it. So I no longer need to ask that question anymore. And I really appreciate you doing that because this is actually a piece of uh, the text that I knew there was something in here, but like I was racking my brain over it in addition to like the other things I wanted to talk about today. So I think I'm going to leave that alone and for the sake of time, move to uh, Jesus's first sermon, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Well, let me just name what did, what did I mean by shortcuts? So with and the queer phobia. Uh -huh. Um, our leaders are tempted to just say, well, this is right. You gotta, you gotta, gotta, they haven't persuaded me that queer people are inferior. They have not persuaded me that same gender marriage is wrong. They've stated it, but they haven't shown any evidence. They haven't shown any revelation. They haven't produced any new revelation, right? They have not done the work of gaining belief. They want the belief. They want the goal without mm -hmm. the work so they're trying right. to take a shortcut they're saying look you just got to go with it i'm like no right that that's unrighteous dominion that is mm -hmm. literally unrighteous dominion which is what the third uh temptation was or at least uh, matthew's third and luke's second temptation is unrighteous dominion dominion yeah. without the without actually gaining and earning it the brethren have not earned common consent yet um, on this issue. It would mm -hmm. be different if we had Latter-day scriptures that talk about this, but there is no doctrine, no official canonized doctrine that speaks to and addresses same-gender relationships as we are asking the questions now. 
So how can they just rush to, nope, we got to do this policy. You got to get on board or you're a heretic. Like, no, that is Satan's plan. That is Mm -hmm. totally Satan's plan to consolidate agreement without actually. Now, if they had a good argument, I'd listen to it. But they don't. Mm -hmm. They don't. Their only argument is just because I said so, because of my calling. Right. Mm -hmm. That's where DNC 121 kicks in. You can't just say, oh, I have the priesthood power, so you have to agree with me. No. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Satan is toying with that righteous desire. Satan is using that righteous desire. Um, yeah, we're we're all susceptible to that. Thank anyway, you. let's let's move on to. Uh, I don't have anything until uh, looking at what I'm going to call Luke's uh, coming out sermon for Jesus, where he, in Nazareth. So, what do you have? Yeah, I'm I'm moving to that sermon as well. Um, this is basically in this first sermon, Jesus declaring his identity and uh, the assigned text. This is starting in about verse 18. The assigned text happened to be Isaiah, but the Savior is recorded by Luke as reading a combination of looks like Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. So this is what the Savior is quoted as speaking in uh, beginning in verse 18. It says, the save, sorry, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Before I go, before I go any further, I just want to point out that uh, this is basically the essence of uh, liberation theology. It looks to the words of Jesus in Luke mm-hmm. 4, where he describes his call to the ministry, echoing the words of this prophet Isaiah and uh, the many ways that he included uh, many of the outcasts, which we're going to see, especially in Luke, women, Samaritans, tax collectors, etc., in his ministry and in his parables. So this is, it's basically the essence that is conge- that is. Uh, con, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, condensed here mm-hmm. that uh, that liberation theology springs out of that God cares about the oppressed. So uh, let me go ahead and continue. This is the f- this is the Savior's first sermon, and he is declaring emphatically that his mission is to the marginalized with words that he uttered to Isaiah just se- like centuries prior. So that was Isaiah sixty. That was from Isaiah sixty-one verse one. Now let's look at the other scripture the Savior alludes to in Isaiah fifty-eight. This is verse. This is going to be verses three, and then five through six. We're going to read what we're going to read occurs in the context of God's critique of the false religiosity of Israel. So I'm going to read from a different translation this time. This is going to be the uh, New International Version translation this time. So it it reads, why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and press all your workers. Is such the fast that I choose a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Close quote. So the Savior is really not here 
for fake religiosity and ritual. He is concerned with the transformation of the lived situation of the poor and the marginalized. True religion, according to the Savior, ought to result in concrete change. Here on earth, the breaking of real yokes, actual yokes. If it's not clear by now, the Savior is about liberation. He's about a life of liberation. He's about valuing the undervalued, uh, liberating the captive, comforting the afflicted, lifting the oppressed, dignifying the disgraced. And this is going to be a theme Mm -hmm. throughout his entire ministry, throughout the entire New Testament, actually. Paul is going to tell us that the Lord himself, that the Lord gave himself to poverty that we might become rich. And then James is going to tell us that God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Sorry. You got uh, something you want to interject or add? Oh, yeah. I mean, this text is why we know that Jesus liked to have eggs for breakfast is because he wanted to break every yolk. (laughs) Uh, I saw it coming and I still wasn't ready. Uh, I just thought of that. So anyway. (laughs) Now you know. Now you know what I how what I what I think. Mm-hmm. I want to name so this text here in Luke four and uh, the Magnificat in Luke one. Notice that both of these are in Luke. Magnificat. These are the the classical central texts for liberation theology. And yes, I want to go back and read the Luke four eighteen and nineteen in the New English Translation Bible, the Net Bible. All right. Just so that people don't miss anything. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Uh, the King James Version has gospel, but that kind of toned down the political implications. Euangelion yes. was a political word. It is a word that Caesar used yes. to announce yes. the birth of... Uh, uh, an important birth or an important victory Same in word. battle. Right. From Luke Same 1. word. Yeah. Or Luke 2, sorry. Yeah, so he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Notice the specificity, not just good news in general, but good news to the poor. We will get a preferential Mm -hmm. option for the poor when I talk about liberation theology in a moment. He has Mm -hmm. sent me to proclaim release to the captives. This is probably the closest that Jesus gets to calling for the abolition of slavery. Um, He Mm -hmm. doesn't in detail ever explicitly uh, call for the abolition of slavery slavery throughout the empire but this is Mm -hmm. this is close it might be close enough we'll see and the regaining of sight to the blind and we have to put a footnote here and say we have to be sensitive to how we talk about disability some Mm -hmm. folks with disabilities want their disability fixed some folks with disabilities want uh the world to be fixed so Mm -hmm. that it can be accommodated and um so we'll see how that that plays out um But I want to go on to the next verse. And to set free those who are oppressed, and this is coming from Isaiah 58, verse 6, as you said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the Jubilee year, right? Which is also an abolition uh, year. Abolition of debt, abolition of slavery, abolition of uh, intergenerational poverty, where things return back to uh, to their ancestral owners. Anyway, uh, so... So this is another example of human fingerprints. It seems very unlikely that if you hand a scroll to Jesus that he would be able to move uh, and just insert uh, this line from Isaiah 58 in the uh, Isaiah 61 text. But that's how Luke Mm -hmm. puts it. That's how Luke decides within his inspired editorial strategies 
to to proclaim this as the word of God, and I, I have no problem with with this. Uh, fundamentalists might not like that there's little crinkles in the text, <laughs> but um, so here we have uh, human fingerprints, and this this mm-hmm. also reminds me. I just wanted I can't remember who first said this, but the scriptures come pre mingled with the philosophies of men already included. Right? We have to be very careful. <laughs> oh, talk how... about that a little bit, Derek. <laughs> Oh. I want to talk about this too, actually. <laughs> well, I don't have time to talk about that, but every oh, we're gonna talk about it, sir. Every like, every text is coming from a specific location in time mm-hmm. and space, a specific bias, uh, yep. a specific um, language, a specific human language. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can see that the scriptures come pre-mingled with the philosophies of men. Uh, yes, you'll sir. See, you'll see that, that's why you see racism in the text Ooh. of the Book of Mormon, right? Ooh. It's got it's got the philosophy. That didn't come from God. No, it did not. Amen, right? That did not come from God. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I but there's so many other things I want to talk about. <laughs> I, well, let me talk about this. Like, okay, while talk we're about on it this, then. Okay, while we're on this subject. Now, regarding... I want to bring this back to the conversation on liberation theology just a little bit, because there is a one big uh, misunderstanding about liberation theology, which is that it like competes with or seeks to replace the message of salvation from sin or forgiveness of sins or the atonement of Christ with a sort of social slash political agenda, a, uh, a social gospel, if you will. And black social gospel is basically what I study in school. It's a steady diet of Christian social ethics fed to me through black theologians, black ethicists, black artists, and uh, black scholars. But uh, there's a massive assumption in that criticism that needs to be addressed, first and foremost. And that is this idea that the theology that we all know that is not liberation theology is somehow not political. Like, Mm. all theology is political, Mm -hmm. including ours. Like the Jesus movement, that did not happen in a political vacuum. We talked about this, this la- the last couple of weeks, especially with Luke, the political circumstances of Jesus's birth, namely the Roman occupation and the Roman oppression. It's still going on in his ministry and people are expecting a political Messiah. The restoration did not happen in a political vacuum. And the church today doesn't exist in a political vacuum. Like the, the, this idea that our theology that has somehow produced this Eurocentric heteropatriarchal social club that we're all a part of, that has way too many white nationalists and is way too silent in the face of black and queer oppression, the idea that that theology is not political, that's a delusion and a sickness. And people who genuinely believe it are delusional and sick. So like, let's stop lying to ourselves about our critiques of liberation theology being a political agenda dressed up in the Bible. That's the entire history Mm -hmm, of Christianity, mm -hmm. especially in modernity. So like... Yeah, this is, it, it, it's all political, however you want to spin it. It's all, it, it doesn't exist in a political vacuum. And I wanted to name a little bit about how we got to this spot. Uh, after the Reformation, we had a bunch of bloody, really awful conflicts, especially the Thirty Years' War, different Protestant denominations and Catholic countries. We got all this stuff mixed up together. And I think what happened towards the end of that is people decided, well, let's have peace in part by privatizing religion and saying, well, religion is between you and God, and it doesn't have much to do with whether you're a good um, Italian or a good Englishman or a good German or whatever. We can, we'll can we mm-hmm. just all like put that to the side and separate artificially 
our religious commitments from our political commitments. And I think in America Ooh. now, we've got a problem where political stuff has now become privatized, where polite people don't talk about political things. But what they mean mm -hmm. by political things is specific partisan politics or specific candidates. But let me talk to you. Political, that is a very manipulative word the way other people use it. Absolutely. Because they say, oh, that's political. Well, political comes from the Greek word polis, which means city. It's about living together in community. Anything that has anything to do with living together in community is political. It doesn't have to be partisan. It doesn't have to be, uh, you know, about a specific election or anything. But anything about how we relate to one another is political. That's the word. That's the root meaning that's of the, the word. word. So how dare you say, "Oh, you're making the gospel political"? That d no, duh. Of course, it's political. Now, do you think I heard someone at school, like one of my professors, describe politics as the ways in which we, as a community, determine how to love our neighbor? Yeah, that's another good way of putting it, right? And it's really also like about how groups live together. See, that's another yeah. thing. A lot of people um, wanted to individualize and privatize uh, salvation to make it no longer about groups. It definitely has something to do with groups. You can see this in the Book of Mormon because in Third Nephi, the gospel breaks in clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. And what did it do to the groups? They were able to have unity right it changed how they treated each other it didn't last mm -hmm. forever but for centuries the breaking of the gospel in and the conversion of the people changed how they lived together it was political like in, in the new testament world the the gospel was not revealed Jesus was not incarnated in a political vacuum. Hello, you're mm -hmm. in a in a, mm -hmm. an oppressed, occupied territory. Yep. Right? Yep. You are narrating this in the shadow of Caesar. Like there are so many political implications throughout the gospels. Like this did not yep. happen in a political vacuum. To, so to say, oh, you're distorting the gospel by Ooh. artificially making it political. Ooh. That Ooh. means you don't understand politics or the gospel. <laughs> oh. Oh, Derek, don't hurt him. Don't yeah. hurt him. So, oh. so I want to I want to talk about um some of the implications. Okay. Let, we've got this this inbreaking in 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 Luke 4 that make people mad and we haven't gotten there yet, but, but I want to talk about how it made people mad. But he's like, "Look, pro to proclaim good news to the poor, all this stuff happens in this world or at least it begins to happen. It's inaugurated in this world and you can see this in the unfolding of what happens Next in Luke, notice what happens. He doesn't preach this wonderful, fiery uh, liberation theology sermon about the release of the captives and uh, and then just say, oh, well, it'll be fixed in the next life. He, he doesn't right. say that. He goes out. He, he heals a leper. He casts out mm -hmm. demons. He calls mm -hmm. Levi to repentance mm -hmm. from tax collecting. Mm -hmm. He feeds people. He doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Have you ever seen? Oh, let me talk about Mormon Jesus for right now. Mormon Jesus would go up to a hungry person and say, oh, you won't be hungry in the next life. Yeah. <laughs> Mormon Jesus would go Yo. up to and by Mormon Jesus, I don't mean 
the true doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I mean cultural Mormonism. Cultural yes. Mormon Jesus would go up to the leper and say, oh, poor baby, you won't have leprosy in the next life. You'll just have to suffer now. And and God will, you'll be in the leper ward until then. But in the, in the next life, there will be no leper ward. And you will... <laughs> Yep. And you will be fixed, right? Yep. Jesus, no. Jesus fixes the problem in this life. He feeds people in this mm-hmm. life. He heals people mm-hmm. in this life. He casts out demons in this life. He calls yep. people to economic liberation in this life. And by ep- economic liberation, I mean he calls the oppressor to give up his oppressive status as a tax collector in this mm-hmm. life. So mm-hmm. why is it all these people talk to me? Oh, Derek, you're, you're gonna be, your problems are going to be fixed in the next life. Even liberals tell me that. They don't say the gay part will be fixed because they right. don't think that's fixable. But they'll right. say the problem of homophobia, the problem of all this other stuff. God, the atonement will make it right in the next life. No, throw that back to the hell it came from. Mm-hmm. When did Jesus ever come up to someone who was in pain in this life and tell them, oh, it'll be fixed in the next life? Mm. It is irresponsible theology and unchristlike theology to defer all hope to the next world. This is mm-hmm. where Satan uses a truth to halt our mm-hmm. curiosity because, you know, it is true that a lot of stuff will be fixed in the next world. I, that's the truth. I admit it. Yeah, of course I admit it. But this is where Satan gets a foothold to halt our curiosity, to halt our, to halt our line upon line, precept upon precept, to halt our, our milk before meat, right? To halt the meat, actually. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, Satan doesn't want me to have meat. Uh, and, and President Oaks doesn't want me to have meat either. Uh, but no mm-hmm. doubt it is true that many things will be set right in the net resurrection, most important, importantly, the final defeat of death, right? But that doesn't mean that we can look at someone who is suffering in this life and engage in spiritual bypassing. We, t- we talked about spiritual bypassing, Absolutely. right? Yes, okay. we have. Yes, we have. So we haven't even gotten there yet, but we're going to get these narratives of, of healing and feeding and casting out even in, in Luke, the rest of Luke 4 and in the in rest in, in uh, Luke 5. Yes, sir. I want to talk more about liberation theology. Gustavo Gutierrez defines theology as critical reflection on praxis in light of the word of God. And we don't do enough reflection on praxis. And praxis is a is a fancy word meaning your practice, what you do, like how you how your daily life as a believer. Like how do you worship? How do you serve? How do you X Y Z? And we don't do a lot of reflection on well, why do we do it this way? Um, let's talk about the preferential option for the poor because this is one of the most mis misconceived. Uh, aspects. And when you understand it in, co- in context, it's perfectly orthodox. It's perfectly in line with, with what, what our church leaders have said. It just looks out of context to, to, to contradict another truth. So Gustavo talked about this preferential option for the poor, and it means that on certain aspects in some dimensions, there is a way in which God sides with the poor. Not absolutely but in context, like if the poor needs someone, it, it, this goes back to the difference between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. If you can understand Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter, you can understand the preferential option for the poor because you have to name the problem. Mm-hmm. You have to tailor your uh, your empathy, your resource, your, your drive to uh, assist, uh, your support to the one, right? 
Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. could say, oh, well, Jesus, in the parable of the lost sheep, he supports liberation theology because he's treating the one sheep differently than the 99 because he says, leave the 99, go after the one. Yeah, that's liberate. That's a prefer- preferential option. That is all we're saying mm-hmm. when we say there's a preferential mm-hmm. option is there's going to be a time and a place for going after the one, yeah. right? Let's look at the Exodus and, narrative. Right. In the Exodus narrative, God treats the Israelites differently than the Egyptians, not because he doesn't love them both, but because they needed different things. They needed the, different the things. The Israelites needed to be liberated from being oppressed, and the Egyptians needed to be liberated from being the oppressors. They also needed mm-hmm. a liberation because they're hurt. They are trapped, and they are limited by being put in a spot where they're oppressing others. That's all we're saying is mm-hmm. it's going to look a little different depending on where you are, but God loves all people. God wants to liberate all people. But there's going to be a preferential mm-hmm. option on one angle of it mm-hmm. when when you need to, right? And let's talk. I here's what yeah. I should think about is. I mean, let me just ratify this yeah. by quoting from Luke five real quick because this is very relevant to what you just said. Uh, we learn how, after we learn how Jews feel about the likes of Matthew after Matthew's call. They'll ask Jesus why he hangs with publicans and sinners, and then Jesus says. The whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. And we could similarly right. similarly say all the things that you just said. He liberate the liberated don't need a liberator. The captive need a liberator. The privileged don't need to be privileged. They don't need to be fed, but the underprivileged. And all lives don't need to be told that they matter. Right. Those that regularly are told that they don't matter need to be told that they matter. And it's interesting considering that we find this teaching in the book of Luke, who again is both well likely a Gentile Mm -hmm. and a physician, someone who knows and understands the importance of ministering aid where it is needed, whether it's an ailing body or an ailing people. So I just wanted to make sure that got in there while you were still having this conversation. And I I learned this from my roommate, James Burston, and I keep forgetting sometimes how to talk to normal people. But he he had this analogy that I thought was really good. I should remember that most, many people, folks that I run into in my ward are going to be parents, right? And they're going to know what it's like to have more than one kid, right? And so uh, I can use that stereotype in, in my teaching and say, okay, what would you do if you had three kids and 10 cookies and one kid ate nine of the cookies all at once? Are you going to give him any more cookies? No, you're going to give cookies to the two that didn't get any, mm-hmm. Right. It makes no sense if one kid just ate nine cookies and the other two kids have to split one cookie, you're going to you're going to make more cookies. And when you make more cookies, you're going to have a preferential option for the kids that didn't get the cookie. Not because you love them anymore. Right. Not because you're wanting to punish or retaliate. Isn't that isn't that messed up when people talk about reparations as though it's punishment rather than a restoration (laughs) of equality? Anyway. Yeah. No parent actually treats all their kids the same in context like you are not the same parent to all your children like out of context like detached you yeah you you love all your kids the same but what they need is different so what that love looks like is different that's all we're saying with a preferential option for the poor right that's all we're saying and let's talk about this a lot of say people will say oh well theology should be neutral it's going to look the same whether you're black (laughs) or white or whether you're gay or straight or whether you're male or female no 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 (laughs) nephi says we need to liken the scriptures up 
unto ourselves. Liberation theology. If I'm doing queer theology, don't you dare condemn that because I am authorized to liken the scripture unto myself. You know what? Mm -hmm. The biggest deception that's been pulled over us is straight white theology got labeled as neutral. It got labeled as just theology, right? Ooh. They've likened the scriptures unto their unto themselves. They've remade God in their image of straight white male and then claimed it was neutral. And then when I come up and be just as biased as they are towards their to my identity as they're biased towards theirs, then now somehow I'm I'm marginal or I'm I'm doing something weird. No. Mm-hmm. You're being political, right? Eric. Like <laughs> you can see uh patriarchy really really influence the way neutral theology is is done and here's another example of a preferential option when it says mourn with those who mourn it doesn't say more with all live mourn with all lives right it doesn't say comfort all lives it says comfort those who what stand in need of comfort need exactly of comfort. you're gonna treat the gospel's gonna treat people differently not because of a of an objective, uh, no, all people are different. People need to be treated differently, but different people need different things. So an equal love mm-hmm. will end up looking a little different. So the misconception I'm talking about is that the preferential option contradicts all are like unto God, and that God is no respecter of persons. Now I I want to say, I probably have quoted all are like unto God more than anyone else. I have quoted God mm-hmm. is no respecter of persons more than anyone else. Well, maybe not more than it, but more than the leaders do, right? So don't mm-hmm. dare say I'm contradicting all are alike unto God when I say God has a preferential option, right? God takes sides. God takes sides in context, mm-hmm. in a limited sense, on one angle, right? This goes back to um, the first shall be last. This goes back to the preference for the younger brother over the older brother throughout the scriptures, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And so we've got two truths that both need to be said. One truth is that all are alike unto God, and the other truth is that God has a preferential option for the poor and marginalized. So both are true, and I think they're true because of each other, right? All are alike unto yeah. God, so God is going to make sure that there's a preferential option there so that they end up um, alike. And Joseph Smith taught... By proving contraries, the truth is made manifest. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 6, page 428. By proving contraries, like you got to hold both. And this is where you got to be a good theologian because Latter-day Saints aren't enculturated to do nuance or mystery or balance or proportion or timing right. Right, but in order to do be a good theologian, you have to have balance. You have to have proportion. You have to have time. You have to say the th- right thing at the right time. You have to apply the right truth at the right time. It's like mm-hmm. a, a, a pharmacy. You got all these medicines. You can't just pull one off and say it does everything. Or like a piano with eighty-eight keys, you can't just hammer on one of them over and over and over. That's not beautiful. And so there's people, amateurs in the truth in the church that may know true one truth very well and then they'll just hammer it all the time. And now some people might say I'm guilty of that and you know, I need to hear it, right? I need to be accountable, right? Sometimes I will take the certain things that I think need to be said because they're not being said and I say them a lot. But you have to kind of balance. You have to know when to say um all are alike unto God and then you have to know when to say black lives matter to God. Both are true. Mhm. 
Yeah. Um, and so part of being a good theologian, and hopefully you're learning this at Union, is that there's wisdom and balance about when and where and how you deploy these truths. And we talked a little right. bit about how uh, the, the misconception that liberation is uh, liberation theology is political. We already talked about that. But I want to just mm-hmm. add that when you look at most Orthodox Christians— uh, and by Orthodox, I don't mean Eastern Orthodox. I mean most Christians— that are the fully orthodox version of their denomination, whether it's Latter-day Saints, Catholics, or Protestants, they will all acknowledge that salvation is integral, that it has a component that is political, it has a component that is um, bodily, that it's about the body and the soul, it's about this world and the next. Like almost every, when you look at the details, salvation is integral salvation, meaning the whole person is saved. Um, and it impacts how we live together in community. And then I want to name another misconception that liberation theology is dangerous, okay? And Gustavo Gutierrez was asked at a banquet to summarize liberation theology, and I don't have the quote in front of me. I'm doing this from memory, but he was like, he had his plate. He was honored at a dinner, and he was carrying his plate to his table or something like that, and someone came up and said, oh, Gustavo, tell me about liberation theology on one foot. And he said, Well, liberation theology is the fact that you do theology differently when you are hungry versus when you are full. And that is so true. When you're hungry, the gospel is bread, right? Hmm. When when you're hungry, you can't, you're not in a position to think about other things uh, often. And what you need is bread, like physical, literal bread. Giving mm-hmm. people bread is uh, is part of salvation. <laughs> it's part of our salvation work. It's part of the gospel. It's literally what Jesus is saying here in Mark 4 that got people so mad. Then one other mm. thing that I want to name is that some people say, and there's a misconception that liberation theology is Marxist. And that's that's there's a little bit of a distorted half-truth in there. And I want to name that if something is, and this is complicated, so be patient with me, everyone. If something is actually true, like independently verifiably true, many, many people will independently notice it. And there's some truths that Marx noticed. We have to name that. If there is a real problem, many people will independently condemn it. And there's going to be some things that Marx independently condemned that he did correctly. Now, Marx was writing at a time after and during the Industrial Revolution, where you had so many abuses that we would all today agree are bad. Extreme child labor, like overworking people in very unsafe, unsanitary conditions for very, very low wages, the exploitation of, of, of poor people and, and making them work in awful conditions. Um, now we have all these protections. We have minimum wage. We have uh, you know uh, labor protections. We have uh, child labor uh, prohibitions. We have limited hours. We have limited work weeks. We have um, provisions in place with OSHA to make sure that workplaces are safe. Like a lot of these abuses of extreme runaway capitalism in the Industrial Revolution, we don't live with anymore, right? Um, and they're all, and but that's what Marx was talking about. He noticed that there was major class problems, major, and and it was true. 
that that part's true and and so i shouldn't be lumped in with guilt by association because marx noticed something that actually happened to be true my point is it is so obviously true anyone on any side is going to notice that it's true and to like use a distorted example very kind of ironic example is like I, and this is going to sound really weird when I first say it, but I and the Nazis agree on the basic truths of mathematics because they're true, right? The Nazi, you go to the Nazi scientists and engineers that engineered awful, disgusting things, but they're all going to say that two plus two equals four, just like I am. Now, am I a Nazi because I, because we have independently hit on a truth together? No, like I condemn everything the Nazis did, including the way they treated queer people, by the way. But the mm-hmm. fact that they have to deal with the real world where 2 plus 2 equals 4 means they're going to know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. They're going to know the basic principles of science and engineering. They're going to know some of these things. And I'm saying that the abuses of runaway capitalism are so obvious that Marx is going to notice them. I'm going to notice them. People in the ancient world, well, they didn't, they didn't have – well, capitalism wasn't constructed the same way in the ancient world. But my point is you had economic injustice in the ancient world. People are going to notice that. The author of Exodus was not a Marxist. Marxist didn't exist yet. Jesus was not a Marxist. Marx didn't exist yet. And, and liberation, theologists, liberation theologians don't have to be Marxist. Now, some liberationists have used Marxist categories because they mm-hmm. already exist and they're useful and they're convenient, but they're not necessary. And I want to say that the primary tenet of liberation theology, that a living, real, active God acts in history on behalf of the poor and marginalized, literally, is to be found nowhere in Karl Marx. That's not that, that's mm. inconsistent with Marx's atheism. That's inconsistent with Marx's, Marx's whole, whole program, right? So, yes, Marx may have gotten parts of the diagnosis right, but the cure is completely different in Marx versus in liberation theology. So that's kind of what I wanted to say about liberation theology. Any comments or reactions to this? <laughs> nah, none that we got time for anyway. Well, I, I hope hopefully got time for some other stuff I wanted to say. Um <laughs> I mean, we don't it, but like, Ugh. but people are going to want to hear more. I mean, if you, well, let me make it real quick. Go, go, I don't know if ahead, I can make this man. real go quick, ahead. but, um, so real quick, let's the, what's the fallout of this, the sermon in, uh, in Luke chapter four? Well, the people of Nazareth get mad. They want to kill him. And what is his response when he, when they complain, he says, that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. This is Luke 4, 24 through 27. He mentions um, the widow at Zarephath. He, he, he mentions Naaman the Syrian, who were outsiders. They were outsiders. They were not central. Um, uh, and so he says, look, the outsiders get it. Jesus points out that those on the margins, those who are outsiders, they get it before those who are at the center of privilege. And it's the same in the church. People in the middle of the privilege aren't going to get it. And then then their anger, uh, then they, the people come out in anger and they're filled with rage. This is in verse 28 to 30. And they want to throw him off the cliff. Now, what does Jesus do? Mm-hmm. It says he, uh, he passed through the crowd and went on his way. So Jesus takes a break from an unsafe religious community. He protects himself. He goes less active, to use a, a kind of a, an out of context word. He, many queer people have to follow Jesus' example here in putting boundaries to protect ourselves. Then that boundary is used against us. Oh, you're breaking your covenants by not attending church or whatever. One of the greatest... <laughs> like, y'all ain't going to kill me if I come to church. Yeah. 
<laughs> Yo. Sorry, but one ahead. of the greatest honors I will ever have in my life is to be treated like Jesus. That should make me rejoice. So that's kind of where I wanted to end things with um, with with Luke. Now, what are your thoughts? You're probably going to say you, there's not time. There isn't. Oh. And uh, I intend to uh, respect that. Like, there will be other times I can... I get to go over this. Like I did want to talk about uh, the significance of Jesus breaking religious laws and conventions shortly after this. Mm -hmm. Like you talked about him healing a leper. Um, This is, and you know, there's Jesus literally touching a leper in order to heal him, which according to, you know, religious law is illegal. And uh, this is Jesus barely being into his ministry and already breaking religious laws and conventions in order to minister to the least of these. And I Mm -hmm. think the only thing Mm -hmm. I really wanted to, uh, settle on with that was just making sure that people acknowledge that um, Jesus, like following the example of Jesus, looks a lot to me like exposing the inhumanity of unjust laws and practices and systems by radical and compassionate defiance of those laws and policies and those systems. We're going to see him do it when he heals on the Sabbath. We're going to see him do it when he heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. Mm-hmm, We're going to see mm-hmm. him do it when he refuses to condemn the woman taken in adultery and many more times. Yeah. But I just love that part of uh, that kind of introductory thing to his ministry. Jesus is already hot out the gate with defying religious conventions and laws with radical and compassionate defiance. I just love that. I love that too. And we'll we'll get some of these again in Luke. I mean, we'll get these Luke things again in Matthew, so we'll have another chance to talk about them again. Um, Hoorah. Yay. Well, anyway, <laughs> thanks again for your patience. I know it uh, has run long, but we will... Uh, it's all good. We will see you again next week. Blessings on your journey. Well... Just by way of housekeeping, where can people find us, Derek? Oh, you can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com and also on Twitter and Instagram. And I don't think we have any events coming up, but, uh, you know, thank you guys for rejoining us. Like, we just returned a couple of weeks back, and it's been a good time. Um, we're glad to be back. But uh, I'm going to, again, ask for y'all to bear with me personally. Like, school, this is the last episode uh, before school starts for me. And I have no idea how things are going to be once school starts. Mm-hmm. I imagine they're going to be a little crazy. I'm still yeah. working on my thesis. I'm giving a light ver- version of it, of a presentation of it next month. I have, you know, work that I'm still doing. So I intend to be here. But in the event that I'm not present in the ways that I'd like to be, I would just ask y'all to show your boy some grace. That right. Is and what might happen is we get solo episodes where James isn't here to tell me that we're running out of time and then it'll be like two or three hours long. <laughs> so that might be, that might be, I'm not joking. <laughs> I know you're not. I know. And I just want to is... also name that in a few days it will be Black History Month. So yes, we need mm. to acknowledge uh, our black pioneers in in uh, Black History Month. And Black History Month isn't just all the sad things, right? There's good mm-hmm. things there. There's there's things to be proud of. There's black excellence that we need to name in, uh, in Black History Month. And we also need to name black history every month. Black history should be done every mm-hmm. month. Anyway, so bye, everyone. Indeed. I'll talk to you later. Till we meet again next week, everybody. Okay, bye-bye.